0: Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Hey folks, welcome to this week's episode, Recording Hot from Nashville, Tennessee, in the middle of sweltering August. My guest this week is Eli Lieb, who is an independent singer-songwriter. Eli has released three albums of work, including songs like Safe in My Hands, which won him an AMP Award, which is a very high honor, I guess, in the uh, advertising field. And also the hit song Pulse, which honored those killed in the Pulse nightclub massacre in Orlando, Florida. He has collaborated with many other writers and artists, such as Steve Grant, Stacey Jones, Cheyenne Jackson, and Crystal Bowersox. Eli has been seen as a YouTube pioneer, and his song views on YouTube have been pegged at well over 50 million. Additionally, he is an active LGTBQ advocate and volunteers time with the David Lynch Foundation. Now, the point of this podcast mostly is to speak to a lot of creative people, musicians, and songwriters being part of that. Um, Under normal circumstances, you would think it would be great to share with listeners some of my guests' music. Unfortunately, our fine friends at the RIAA Secret Police, which represent the major label groups here in the United States, have been issuing many takedown notices to podcasts over the past few months. Even if an artist owned his own rights, like Eli does, you could kind of expect to see the overreach of an RIAA. AA take down notice. So in my opinion, it seems that podcasting has become a really generous platform for artists to promote their work and their music. And it's just a damn shame that I can't share that with my listeners and my guests' fans. So on to my chat with singer-songwriter Eli Lieb. Enjoy. Hello, Eli.
1: Hello, Nick Terzo.
0: I am so grateful that you came aboard to do this with me today. I have many questions. I find your career path fascinating, um, and I love the independence of it. Um, So I kind of want to focus a lot of our talk around that, because you really did set out as an independent artist, and you became successful doing that, so...
1: Yeah, I would like to point out, though, that you really were there since the very beginning. I I was doing the math, and we've known each other for 18 years. 18? You met when I was was 22.
0: Wow. Crazy. Yep. There goes two decades pretty quickly. I know. So, um, you're in, I assume you're in the lovely state of Iowa? I am. Quarantining
1: quarantining, hunkering down, what seems like for the rest of my life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I assume in Iowa, since it's got less of a population base, that it's a little bit easier to handle all this in some ways.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, being in a small town makes it easier just because you're in a less populated area. But I'm also finding because you don't see it as much, people aren't really taking it as seriously as a real threat. You know, people are so in the mindset of like, well, if I don't see something, then it doesn't exist. Right. So it's a, it can be a little frustrating seeing the, the amount of people not taking it seriously. But I think as the days go by, it's getting a little more um, real.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So, so I don't, I want to jump all over the place, but I mean, were you born in New York and then your family went to Iowa or were you, were you born in Iowa?
1: I was born in New York, just outside in Rye, New York. Um, And I moved to Washington, D.C. from there when I was probably in like preschool and lived in D.C. until third grade. In third grade, I moved to Iowa. And I stayed there through my first year of college, and then I moved to New York.
0: Yeah, amazing. And was that a... I mean certainly Fairfield's a very interesting place. Um was that had a, was that an ideal childhood?
1: I mean uh, is there looking, such a thing? <laughs> I don't think there is such a thing. Looking back at it, I'm like so appreciative of my upbringing. You know, we Fairfield as you know is like the head quarters of uh transcendental meditation. There's a whole community here based around it and the school that I went to was the meditating school and that's also why we actually were in DC because there was a smaller community there and then we moved to Iowa which is where the bigger community is so I mean you know going through school I didn't like school but that wasn't based off of my specific school it was just I just don't really like I just didn't I didn't love it (laughs) Um, but I wouldn't have loved it anywhere I went Um, but looking back at it I am super grateful of the school that I did go to because it was, you know, we meditated twice a day and we had normal academics, but there was also a little bit more than that on top of it. That was a little bit more about like consciousness and sort of living a harmonious life. So I can really see how that plays, played into who I am now.
0: Yeah. It's funny now to think, you know, when you were doing that, you know, how unusual It was really as a practice that was. It's
1: so bizarre now because I remember thinking that I was just like the weirdest person. I mean, when I'm, when I was in Iowa growing up, it was normal. So it's fine. But I remember when I moved to New York in 2000, I was still looked at as being super weird because I meditated and was healthy and like had a spiritual practice. And to see the transition from then to now is like so bizarre. Not only has tm itself become like super mainstream just like the whole like spirituality and a spiritual practice and yoga and all that stuff is like as normal as getting a cup of coffee now so to see the transition from being looked at as like totally weird to being just like run-of-the-mill is super bizarre
0: yeah i can imagine were you um while you were living there, I mean, did you just pick up music on your own? I mean, did you take lessons ever? Were you just a self-taught kid? What drew no. you to like music?
1: I really, I mean, I, I was singing in musicals since I was like 12. I always liked to sing. But I guess I sort of realized that at that age when I started doing the shows that um, I could sing, I guess. But music, I just taught myself. I remember very distinctly picking up my brother's guitar when I was like 16 and just like starting playing it. But I had never picked up a guitar before and I was like playing it kind of instantly. I guess like music has always been really, really instinctual for me. Nobody could ever teach me how to read music. I've like tried, but I just can't. For some reason, I can't learn that. But I'm very... um, hands on and if i hear something i will eat, like be able to teach myself to play it without too much issue so i just kind of started putting my fingers on the strings and the frets until it sounded right and i taught myself piano the same way and it, you know it it's kind of cool because it gave me my own um my own rhythm like my own internal rhythm was able to speak through whatever instrument i was playing and it was able to allow me to develop my own style i guess the only time that it becomes a little challenging is that every single thing i do is from memory so i don't have that sort of like theory to rely back on especially with piano that's where i like really have to practice if i'm going to perform because it's all just memory
0: right um, and well, I, I mean to... with these it's I mean, aside from your brother's guitar, I mean, there's a piano in the house. Did your parents play or they listen to music? I mean, what was the environment? No, I mean,
1: my parents were not uh, musical at all. My dad was like super analytical and really good at numbers and math. And like, I can barely add one plus one. So like the the music thing kind of just came out of nowhere. Um, We had a piano and I took piano lessons when I was really little. Um, but like so young that I don't really attest that to me playing piano now. And I never really picked up piano again until I moved to New York and just got some small digital piano and just kind of kept playing on it.
0: I remember those days. Um, so, um, tragically your dad passed really early, right. In your life. I mean, was that while you were in Fairfield or that happened when you went off to New York?
1: It was in new york he died when i was 25 okay
0: and what kind of impact has that had really on anything your music your outlook on life i mean that's pretty early to lose a dad
1: yeah i mean you know it's a really intense thing to go through but i really look back at it as being i mean obviously a pivotal moment in my life but like in a lot of positive ways i think when you um I mean, everybody has the vague understanding that we're all going to die one day. But when you are really faced with it and you see it firsthand, especially with, you know, like a parent or or anybody who is extremely close in that way, it really hits home that this is going to happen because you've seen it. And when you really understand that, for me, at least, it had this sort of shift where like, I just didn't want to waste my time on anything making me unhappy. I just didn't see any point of it. Because when you're in that moment, like what does all of that stuff matter or mean? It just is kind of like a waste. So I kind of um, shaped my existence from then to try to put happiness as the top priority over anything, regardless of what that would mean. Because I kind of also go by the belief that if you go towards happiness, the right things will unfold and the right things might not be exactly how you see it, but in the long run where you're going and where you're supposed to be, it'll all fit into place better. And it kind of worked, worked out well going in that theory.
0: Right. So kind of the lesson learned is, you know, maybe more of a timeline about life and you know, how it's not a granted thing that you live to be 80. Um, and and to prioritizing what you do with that life is a yeah, lesson. Like, and
1: what's the point in doing something if you're just miserable? You know, it's kind of like, it, it just, I don't see there to be any point. Because life is ultimately not about, like, how much success you can get, how much money you can make. It's about the experience of, of it all. So if your experience of getting that recognition and money is miserable, there's no point. Right. You know it really did with that knowledge in mind it definitely put me in a tailspin for a few years and i didn't do music at all like nothing Mm. i think right before my dad died it, it was like a really weird period of time because um i was working right before that i was working with a bunch of music people that you and i both know in common um and a lot of stuff was happening with that and going well and having roadblocks, but there was just a lot of work being put in and people that I've been working with for a long time. And then a series of, you know, meetings happened and then the people that I met with didn't want to do anything with me. And I guess the some of the people that I worked with just sort of were like, you know, this is done. We're not going to do it anymore. Um, and then right when I sort of got that memo. I got a call to come home because my dad had taken a turn. Like I had known he had cancer for a while. So like within like a week, a lot of my career stuff kind of just like abruptly ended and my dad died. So I was just like, you know, floating upside down for like four or three or four years.
0: (laughs) Understandably. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. So when you're 20, right? Or, I mean, all of a sudden you decide, ah, Fairfield's just a tiny town. I've got to go sow my oats or you know, whatever directed you back to New York City, um, whether it was career, whether it was just like, you know, this is too small a town. I want to go see what the world looks like. What what led to that? I mean, did your parents support that? I mean, what kind of drove you to New York City?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, my parents were very supportive. Um, I None of the decisions I make are ever irrational or irresponsible, but huge life decisions always happen very quickly. I remember um, we were in actually in North Carolina at the time, because we used to have a house there. I was there, and then I just sort of like had this internal thought of, "I think I need to go to New York City." And literally within like two days after that, I was on a train to New York from North Carolina, and I just found an apartment like the next day that I got there, and that was it. And then I hadn't been like thinking about it for before that at all. It just like happened. And everything else significant in my life that I can look back on is really happens in the same way. I don't know what kind of wave I've been riding, but it kind of just like pushes me.
0: Mm. That's kind of cool, actually. I like that. It's, it's, it shows some confidence for sure. Um, so I want to go back a little bit to, you know, what you kind of mentioned earlier, which is you're in New York. Um, you know, some of us met you. You've met a few industry people. You met, you know, Jonathan Daniel at Crush Management, which is a big management company now. You went out and did your, uh, whatever you want to call them, auditions or playing for the major labels. Um, And tell us about that, like period, because you were kind of going down the traditional path, right? And then yeah. that, that kind of was... goes sideways.
1: Yeah, I mean. Um... So I originally met Jonathan Daniel because I worked at this store. It's really bizarre. That, I mean, life is bizarre. I got a job at this like travel store um, that just sold luggage and like ra- random travel stuff. So I work there. I get a job like in the summer, mid-summer of 2001, and then September 11th happens. Nobody's traveling. So we all basically that store just like stopped running. So we all didn't have a job anymore. But in those couple of months that I worked there, I, my, one of my coworkers who, you know, Shane was in a band with Jonathan Daniel. And he was like, I, I think I had made some smaller demo before that. And I played it for him cause he was a musician. And then he said, he knew this manager that he thinks would probably like me. So he, and it was Jonathan Daniel. So he brought me in and I, Played him my little demo, and he seemed to be interested right away. And we just kind of started working together. Um, So he would set me out on a bunch of like sessions, I guess, with different producers and writers to try to find a right fit, as you know, sort of a very common thing you do. And I ended up sort of getting more established with this guy, Dave Katz and Sam Hollander. Um, I think Sam Hollander came in a little later in the game, but Dave Katz I was working with for a while. So we basically just like wrote and recorded stuff day and night for quite a long time and made this batch of songs that, seemed pretty good and people were responding really well with well to which i which got the attention of a lot of different labels so all of a sudden like really quickly i started going in and like meeting like the presidents of like every label and i don't really like i i honestly other than just like fate and the universe did not want me to go down that road i can't really say why it didn't work out because just seemed like it was so smooth and effortless, and the songs were great. People were responding really well to it. Um, you know, at the, I was writing with like huge writers, and it just had a lot of momentum behind it, but like nothing would go past just meeting with the labels and having them say, like, you know, I love this song. I love this. Like, it was just bizarre. So I guess enough of that happened where they just sort of, you know, lost steam and thought maybe it wasn't going to happen. So right, you know, when I sort of got to, started to understand that that's what they were thinking is when I got the call about my dad. So it was just like a really bizarre, bizarre thing. But it's funny looking back at it because it was like the way they were doing it, it was kind of like making me, they developed Katy Perry basically right after they were working with me. And one of the songs on my demo was a cover of Your Love by The Outfield and then on her first EP she recorded the vocals um, and they changed a little bit of the production, but it was like pretty much the same thing. So I was like, were they trying to like make me like a male Katy Perry, but then she got it instead. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I was working with like Dr. Luke and Cara Diaguardi, like all these people. Yep. So it was, you know, the one thing that I really, I mean, I was really grateful for that whole experience, but you know, which I'm sure we'll get into fast forward to my like second music career that yes. worked. <laughs> it What that period gave me, and this was the confidence to know what I am capable of doing is good enough. Because when you have somebody like Jonathan Daniel as your manager who, you know, now manages Sia and all these enormous people and, you know, Sia is like one of the biggest songwriters. It makes me understand that he saw in me what he sees and these huge, huge people, and it's the same with you. Um, so it really did help with my confidence moving forward, even though it didn't
0: work out. Right. So, so you turned. You know, you never really looked at this. I mean, it's not like a failure. Like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? I mean, look, you had a more urgent thing going on with your dad's passing. So, really, in a way, this almost just kind of fizzles out. Really, is how I mean, it ends more so than. Disappointment, yeah. per se, were you disappointed or you were like I, uh... mean, I was
1: disappointed it was more like a shock because you know when you work with i mean we worked together for i mean not you and I but these other musicians I was talking about for like a couple of years all the time, so when all of a sudden you're just like dropped, kind of it's a shock, it's like an emotional shock as opposed to like freaking out um but like the other thing, so after my dad died and realized and I don't want to I'm not like trash talking them they had to do what they had to do for their own careers and Jonathan has helped me since then too so after my dad died and I just didn't want to waste my time on anything that made me unhappy it made me reflect back at what I was doing where I was really grateful for the experience it started to turn into something that I didn't really enjoy and I do remember Jonathan being like you know this demo, these songs are a little different than what we were doing before. I just want you to know if we go down this road, like this is the road it's going to be. And I was like, totally, I want to do that. So it's all my own creation, which I'm not putting blame on anybody. But it did get to this point where like, we were going into label meetings and just like, I felt like I was more an actor than a musician. It was like, at one point we brought in another guitar player and I had to make up this whole story as to how we met, but we really just auditioned him and they just brought him (laughs) in and I like never met him before. But I had to make up this whole story to tell in the meeting with the president of the labels, how like we met, I was playing a show and then like my guitar string broke and he was there and gave me his string. And then we like got a drink afterward. It was like, it was pretty nuts. And, and it, you know, you're, image your clothes everything is kind of monitored you're just like this kind of sucks um so uh, when i stopped doing music and my dad died i was just really confused because i knew that the only thing i could ever do to earn a living for myself was music
0: and were you in new york still though or did you go back to fairfield and say i
1: went to fairfield for like three weeks when my dad died but then i went right back to new york okay and so i i just was like i I know that music is the only thing that I will have a career in, but I have no idea what to do and how to get into it, like what, where it suits me. Cause I had sort of basically got as far as you can go. <laughs> like I met like all the right people, was in the right crowd, was doing all the right things and it didn't work. And not only did it didn't work, it really wasn't something that was bringing me joy. So then I'm like well, what what do I do now? So that's when I um just kind of just lived in New York for probably like oh god like 4 years just doing nothing. I think in in the middle of that I decided I I was like I'm done with New York because I was miserable. And I was like I'm just going to move to San Francisco. Cuz I at that point I wasn't in my mind um I didn't want to go back to Iowa. So I kind of thought, well, the next logical step in this place to live would be San Francisco. It's a nice big city. It's really progressive. It's really good place with, for gay community. And I went there and I hated it and I lasted for six months and then I went back to Iowa and then went back to New York. So. Um, were you going to say something?
0: <laughs> no, I was going to say you. You warned me about that because I went and did the San Francisco thing, and yeah, you kind of set it up for me, and it turned out to be true. It's like, oh, Eli like, was right.
1: <laughs> no offense to people who live there and love it. I know I have friends who lo- live there and love it. It just like was so not for me at all. But it also was like part of the reason was probably where I was at, emotionally and as a person. I don't think any place would have like solved my problems
0: right but seldom then, do they
1: yeah but then um i moved back to new york and i got in a relationship and i still wasn't really doing much and uh the person i was with at the time had a dog who didn't live in the city lived with his mom out of state and for we decided at one point like let's try to bring the dog back to new york and see how it goes it only lasted a week cause it was. Uh, an Irish wolfhound, which is like bigger than me, and we had a small apartment, so it just didn't work. <laughs> but within that week, I was walking the dog every day, and I kept on running into this guy around the building who I'd seen in my building before, but it never met. um But he had a dog, so the two dogs would stop and like sniff each other, and then we'd say hi and like move along. So that happened like every day for like three or four days. And then on the, the last day, I went to the dog park and he was there as well uh, with his dog. So the dogs were running around and he and I were talking and just talking about like dog groomers and places that, you know, take the dog in the city. And he's like, well, let me give you my card and send me an email and I will email you all the information. He hands me his card. It says Scott Sevier, like senior vice president, RCA records. I was like, oh, this is a very interesting happenstance moment and i also am not the kind of person if i go to a party and there's a very big person in like the music industry or something in my field i never ever um try to sell myself ever i just kind of remain quiet but with him i felt sort of an openness that i felt that i it was okay to open up to him so i was like oh you know i was in the music industry sort of for quite a while. And I knew that the names that I've been working with were big names. That if I told him I worked with them, he would immediately take me seriously. So we started talking about like the whole thing that I did before. And then how I was just sort of like in this limbo. I was like, I don't really know what I want to do. I know that I'm a musician, a songwriter, a singer, but I just like, I don't know how to get back into it. I don't know where I want to get back into it. So he basically, um, he was like, well, send me your stuff. I want to listen to it. And then we can talk more. So when we talked more, he was like, you know, there's this thing right now, which I think could be good for you, is YouTube. And I had I knew that people were singing on YouTube. It like just started to be a thing. But like I looked at it as being extremely cheesy. Um, but so he suggested that I start covering songs there. Because when you cover songs, people... At that time, the YouTube algorithm was 100% different. YouTube was a different website. It might have the same name, but it's not the same website. So before, if like somebody wanted to search for the latest Lady Gaga song, all these covers would show up in the related places. And if your cover got more attention, you would be higher ranked and closer to like the actual Lady Gaga video. So I didn't, on my own, want to make these videos because I just... To me, it just seemed cheesy. But I also know that when somebody is of such high power and is willing to work with you and gives you that kind of advice, you should probably, if it's within your comfort zone, like take that advice just to show them that you have initiative. So literally the next day, I uploaded my first video and sent it to them. And then I kind of just started posting videos like on a daily. And then that kind of slowly started to take off. And then I remember when I, after I got my first million views, I introduced my first original song. Because you could put up, you could be at that time, you could put up a really, really great song, an original. But if nobody knows who you are, they'll never find it. Because things going viral wasn't the same as it is now. I mean, now it's not even the same as it was four or five years ago. But yeah, that's sort of like what brought me to where I
0: am. Yeah, so you're kind of a pioneer then, and like you said, the the algorithms worked in your favor then to kind of do that to establish yourself. Um, And you've kind of gone on to build a really nice following during that time with your original material. I mean, tens of millions of views, right? I've
1: got. Last time I looked, it was over fifty million.
0: That's incredible. So (laughs) amazing. I mean.
1: It's it's really interesting because I definitely am like so grateful that I started it when I did because I got in at the beginning of it and I feel like I was like one of the original clump of musicians because musicians now on YouTube aren't a thing. Um, but I just like whereas before when I was working when I met you and working with Jonathan like things were not it going in my favor in, at, past me meeting all the right people. With this, I feel like I was just at the right place in the right time and things kept on going in my favor. Like, you know, I got enough of a following on YouTube and then Instagram comes out and then I start getting a following on Instagram. And it kind of just, I was at, I went on the platforms at the right time. Now it's so oversaturated that like, it's impossible. You know, it's impossible because every single person is trying to do it. I kind of use the analogy of like when the television first came out and there were like five channels every channel was successful and all the shows were popular but now it's like you turn on the TV and there's a thousand channels so it's like what do you it's impossible to find content and people are just making so much of it that it's kind of just crap
0: and here we are and here and I here am we are. <laughs> with a podcast so here yeah, we are
1: yeah it's um it's been really really interesting to make your own career because really in order to keep on like Thriving, you have to constantly adjust to whatever the new algorithms are and all the new platforms. And like, I'm at this point in my life, I'm like, I don't have any desire to keep up with that anymore because I see it as so destructive, too. It takes all of the art out of what you do because you have to just spend so much of your time and energy on this social media monster, which is like, I don't think people see how destructive it is to like the human soul.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, I think, um, you know, this week, I think, you know, with Daniel Eck kind of mentioning from Spotify that artists need to just keep releasing music and that's the way they're going to sustain themselves. And he's been getting, you know, enormous blowback from artists, you know, kind of saying, you don't have any idea what it takes to create songs. Um, Yeah,
1: I know. It's like, you can't just make them and make them. It's when you're making, like when you're a songwriter, when you're an artist of any form, you don't just make something all the time. It has to be sparked by something. And that spark doesn't come every day. Like I'll have months where I don't make anything and I try, but it's just not there. And then all of a sudden, I'll sit down and this thing comes out. Like all of my songs that are that I put into the world, if I put it out, I think it's good. And if I if I get it to that point, I honestly don't really remember writing them. They just kind of like come out. And those are the ones that I capture because the other ones that I feel like I'm trying too much, it just doesn't, it doesn't have that, not to say that my songs have magic in them, but it doesn't have that artistic magic from my point of view, where like something else conspired to make the song happen. And there's some different energy in it. And it's like, it's the problem with the way social media is now is that it is all about content and content is different than art, but everybody is just making content. And that to me is like the huge, huge problem. You know, even like huge, the biggest people now, nobody has like hit songs anymore. You remember like, Since You've Been Gone, when that came out, that was like a number one hit for like a year. That song was playing on the radio all the time. The Avril Lavigne songs, like this is just that one period, like the early 2000s. Um, Now it's like, you know, Katy Perry puts out an album, Taylor Swift puts out an album. Everybody's excited about it the day it comes out. And then, then they're like, when's the next one? People just like, it's, it's
0: definitely more burn to it, you know, more like kind of the film releasing a film model, you know, it's kind of the same thing as the film industry now is really what it's become.
1: And I'm not like,
0: I'm
1: not Mm -hmm. bitter about it. It's just frustrating because also like, I remember seeing when, you know, I have total respect for Taylor Swift. This is not a jab at her at all. It's sort of how things were labeled. Um, You know, I think she's done amazing Work this year, actually, musically and politically. But her last album that she just released, like a couple weeks ago during quarantine, they're like Taylor Swift's new indie album. I'm like, it's not indie. She, it's a great album. It might sound like in indie music, but indie is independent. Indie music is independent. Like it's it. it it's not it, everything's getting skewed. So now every like mainstream now is turning indie which sort of takes away from the actual independent people. Like, what, what do I, what am, how am I going to compete with an independent artist, quote, like Taylor Swift? <laughs> who's actually the big, like the biggest pop star on the planet. And I'm sure she didn't uh, say it was an indie record. It's just people, that's what people are saying.
0: Right. So, but it's all so it's on,
1: this, I, yeah, go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say not that to flip topics, but. You know, on creating, you know, you've done so much on your own um, where you kind of produce yourself, you write yourself, you know, and then you kind of did another kind of part of your career where you went to L.A. and collaborated with a lot of successful songwriters um, on writing for other artists, even. I mean, what's your I mean, I have a feeling I know what your preferred path is, but uh, how do each of those differ and which one's better for you?
1: I really love writing for other people um i had to walk away from it because la to me is like the most toxic place in this entire anywhere i have ever been it's that you it's the most toxic place you could ever live um the entertainment industry when you are like really in it is is a beast that most people don't know and it really is not fun especially for somebody like me who really genuinely wants like real relationships with people, and wants something deeper? It's, um, yeah, it's it's post
0: post Malone left. Post Malone's at the height of his career, and he moved to Utah because he couldn't handle the L.A. thing.
1: Yeah, it's it's really soulless. <laughs> I still, again, like you know, talking about San Francisco which is not soulless, but like, I have very good friends in LA who love LA. So I know everybody has their own experience with it. I just, I think because I was so deep in the entertainment industry, I just have that experience of it. And it's just, it's a hundred percent superficial. You know, I had an easier time because I moved there right as my career started taking off even more. So like I had some kind of recognition. So I just had an easier time because that's how LA is. Um, but you know, it's like you work with people the second they think that you're not going to cut it. They just don't work with you anymore. No matter what your personal relationship was with them, because everybody's there just to like win. It's like truly like watching like a reality show, you know, when people are like, well, I got to play the game dirty if I'm going to win. Right. Not everybody's like that, but it's, it's like that.
0: Did you get cuts while you were there? I mean,
1: heart, I got like one and I, it like, it's so bizarre. It's, the, it's a, such a weird thing, you know. You can write these songs that people are like, "Oh, this is coming out. This is a single," and it just never happens. And you work with all these people and just like write countless and countless amounts of songs with name like known people, and it just never happens. It's very how very. Long, how I, long I, did I read, you
0: stay there? Like how many years did you kind of commit to doing that?
1: I was there for Insanity. four years. Wow. Four years, and you know, I remember reading an article that Sia wrote, gave, and she said she's like, you know, one out of thirty songs that she writes gets cut. So if like that's happening to Sia, you know, imagine the rest of everyone. And the other thing with the music industry is like, if the song is coming from an already known person, it's automatically better in people's minds, even if the song actually isn't. So it's really, really hard when you're starting off to like cross that bridge of having people like take your song seriously. I had way, I mean, the success I had for myself was m- way more than what I had for writing for other people, even though I was writing constantly.
0: Right. Well, that's, I good re- loved- that's reinforcement for you though, right? To kind of, you know, pick a path and it keeps you on the path you're on.
1: Yeah, I mean, not getting cuts was really frustrating, but I still loved writing. I worked a lot um, with this guy Peter Lloyd, who was uh, Hollywood Records and Disney. So I like would go to the Disney lot all the time and write for some of their up and coming bands, and I like that was fun regardless of if I had a cut or not. Um, you know, it was frustrating. I mean, the thing with songwriting is like it's a full time job if you want to succeed, but you don't get paid. You don't get paid unless you get a cut. And even then, you're not getting paid a lot. They pay you as a formality just so they can own the song. And you only really get paid if the song does well. So the chances of that happening are very small. Um so it's to me the the, the flaw is like a label I, I one of my really close friends is this guy, Stacy Jones, which you probably know. I do. So he and I actually ironically had Jonathan Daniel as a manager at the same time in New York, but he and I didn't know each other, but he's from, you know, American hi-fi and he's Miley's MD. Um, but he and I worked together all the time and we were working with this like up and coming band, uh, in LA. And we basically were working with them for like a month straight. The label paid for everything paid for the booking of the studio and all that. But like, we didn't get paid. The songwriters don't get paid unless, like, we, we made songs, and then if the label wants them is when they start to pay you. But you could work for that month, and they could say, we don't really like any of these songs, and then that's it. So it's really difficult for people speculation. To, to succeed and, like, make a living, because you're not paid for your time. You're paid if the song does well, if they even release it, which to me seems crazy. I feel right. like they should pay the writers, too, <laughs> for their time, but... Well, Let's so go not, back to it, the
0: old days when people had yeah. staff writers and they got paid it's, that way.
1: It's, so. it's very, um, not to, it's very hard to, to sustain. Like I know songwriter friends in LA who are so talented and have had like pretty sizable cuts that still are broke, you know? So that's the part that's hard, but it's still, I know all of us love the writing part of it. Like I do miss that. It's not worth it to me to live in LA for that, but like, I really do miss getting together with a group of people and making a song that you're all really pumped about because there is every time that happens, there's like magic that you can feel. And it's really um, good for your creativity to keep on harnessing that because it sort of becomes stronger.
0: Right. So do you leave LA and go back to Fairfield? Is that kind of your final decision? Like I'm going to go where my soul is and where my family is. I
1: just, I would come back and visit and I was so happy when I was here. And one day, just like that same thing of like, Oh, I'm going to move to New York. It just, I came back to visit and I was here and I was sitting down I'm like I'm moving back here. Cause the, the difference that I felt in my whole being was like so palpable that I knew it just like, I can't do that. I can't do the LA thing anymore.
0: Good and on I you. just left. It's great. And as so so you stay on the independent path, you left, went back to Fairfield, kind of got your grounding again. Um you ended up how did this like you did a commercial for Allstate? Um yeah, that, around... that happened that was
1: in 2014. I um that happened when I was living in LA, but ironically, I would have gotten that if I hadn't lived in LA. Because I made the the thing that really tipped my career over i think was my song young love that song and music video um i re- i uh, made the music video i recorded that video just like a month before i moved to la um and side note i wasn't even planning on moving to la i moved there just to like song go on songwriting sessions for like a month and then after 2 days being there seeing all the stuff that already happened in those 2 days i was like oh i have to move here now but um so I filmed young Love, I went to l a and then i released i moved to l a made the decision so I could keep working and then I released young Love um, a couple months after that, and that did really well and then th- one of the guys who was working on the allstate campaign, he'd been working on it for a couple of years but never could get it off the ground. so he saw young Love and reached out to me saying that he interested in me for this campaign they didn't even know if the campaign was going to happen so basically i had to write the actual song for the campaign before i even knew that i had it or that it was even happening but he said it was the song that like actually made the campaign happen so then all of a sudden i became the face of like an lgbt campaign for Allstate in the summer of 2014. And I made a song for their commercial and filmed a commercial where I was like a cartoon and then morphed into myself. It was very bizarre. I never thought that I would be a cartoon (laughs) character. Um, So that was very awesome. And that campaign ran for two years, which is great. Wow. Um, Because I was basically employed by Allstate for two years, (laughs) which is also
0: great. And they, it won an award, though, didn't hey, it? It, it did. won, like, an, an advertising award of some sort.
1: I didn't know these existed, but I guess the AMP Awards are, like, the big awards for advertising and commercial. And I won, like, the overall best song of the year of any category. Look at that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like, how did I not get more commercial work from that? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't actively try, but, you know.
0: It's a valid question.
1: I know. So. I still to this day think that. I'm like, what? Ball was dropped. <laughs>
0: yeah. But what I love there still, though, is look, it's it, you're still on this independent path and things like that happen for people, you know, and I think that's a really great lesson. You know, you didn't need to have universal music publishing, you know, pitching your songs to like Mm-mm. Leo Burnett.
1: Well, that's that's why it was Leo Burnett, actually, that did the campaign, ironically. <laughs> um But the thing is, is like every single thing that I've ever had be really successful, I never tried to, it just happened. Like there was Young Love, it was just a song that I wrote, and then a video that I made. The next thing after that, because the Allstate thing didn't get released right away, and it was the next summer, because Young Love was 2013, Allstate was 2014. The summer, Um, after Young Love, I made, I randomly, like one afternoon, made a cover of wrecking ball by miley cyrus because i liked the song and i started playing it on my little dulcimer and i was like oh this sounds good why don't i just record this really quickly like vocals in one take the dulcimer i did it in a take and just put it together with a musician a producer i was working with went and recorded a video for it in an afternoon got home from that from editing the video at like midnight i uploaded it to my computer At midnight, which I normally didn't do because that's not the right time to upload anything. But I was like, you know what? I don't really care. I'm just going to put it up and I'll promote it tomorrow. Upload it, shut my computer, open my computer in the morning, and it had already gone viral. Like I didn't do anything. And all of these famous people were like retweeting it. And I, the next day was on like national television for it. And that wasn't brought by, I didn't have an agent trying to get something. I wasn't like pushing, it was just, I created something, I put it out there, and it got response. Um, I, another big one that happened in that way was after the Pulse nightclub. Um, my friend Brandon and I, who's, he is an incredible musician um, and songwriter and singer. We were working together a bunch and after the Pulse shooting happened, we decided to write this song. It was like the next day or something we wrote the song called Pulse and then finished it probably at like, you know, 10 o'clock at night. We went right down into West Hollywood because we were just like a block away. We went to all the bars and just recorded footage. We were going to make a video. We went back to his apartment and edited the video. I didn't get home until like 4 a.m., put it out. And there was the same thing the next day I was on. We were both on um, the Lawrence O'Donnell's show because it went viral. It was like it was so bizarre how quickly it happened, but it was again another thing that we just wanted to make something and we just put it out with no plan. I'm telling you, when you put something out that is real, the no plan method works pretty well if it's good because it's not contrived, it's not forced. Anytime anything feels forced, nobody wants any part of it.
0: Right, that makes sense. I think it's
1: not you know it's not that easy. I I do think that I've had a stream of luck with that, Um, you know, but. Nobody wants to be pushed on the second year, like pushing something on some, pushing something on somebody, they're not going to think that it's needed. They, they, everybody wants to come to something on their own. That's when it becomes special to them.
0: So we're running short on time here and there's something, you know, I have to ask you because it's, you know, I've always been kind of fascinated. Um, you know, you've built this career kind of like minus the live touring part of it. Um, which you know today in COVID you look like a genius um, that that's not involved but you know what what was that really what goes to your mind on that because you have a big enough fan base I think you could go out and play shows and it just seemed to me that never really appealed to you on any level am I wrong Never
1: you know you are right and I remember you on the earlier stages being like you're like dude if you don't tour it's not going to happen and I was like I don't know you know i was like maybe i can and i just like
0: sounds like not, me
1: <laughs> i didn't listen to your advice on that i was listening to myself um i just don't have the energy for it. i don't have the desire like i um it's just i don't have the desire for it i don't have the desire of what that life entails i'm i'm a very sensitive person like i can't stay out super late i don't drink very much at all i'm really healthy and my body like can't handle being abused i just fully break down if i'm not on a good routine so it's just i wouldn't be able to do it but i also just don't have that desire like i connect with my audience through what i make and what i give out to them through music but i don't really feel that need to connect on that like real life basis
0: okay and look the only reason i say it is i think you know and i've been in rooms with lots of great singers and you have one of the best voices i've ever heard and you know to not see that live to me is just uh you know i think it's a loss for your fans and that's where that comes from that's not coming from any criticism really it's i think it's more of a loss for people that really like your music
1: that means a lot to me thank you but You know, it's also, I think the one aside from the exhaustion of it all, the one thing that's also really been a roadblock in doing that, because I do love to sing and I love being on a stage singing. Um, I don't need to do it like on a tour, but the occasional I would do. But I think what's really hard is that when you're independent, I have to arrange, I do everything myself, like everything. I don't have a single person working for me. So the thought of having to book it, and then I would have to pay for it and figure everything out. Like, it's just too much. It's too much. That's I, basically what it comes in. You know, well, people, it's too like,
0: much. The work is too much up front. And then, you know, a touring schedule is brutal. It's just brutal yeah. on anyone physically.
1: You know, if, if there was some like, I've, I sang a bunch in LA when I was living there. I would do events, which I loved doing. Um, there would be these galas and stuff. And I would go on and sing a song or two. And that was very manageable for me. Because I also could just like, it's like plug and play, you know, you just go in, there's a whole crew of people there, and I don't have to arrange any of it. Um, and it's not that I don't want to be bothered to arrange it, but I've been arranging so much other stuff for my career for like over a decade that I'm just exhausted.
0: Makes sense. And to like,
1: yeah, it's it's too much when you're on, when you're just like a one man show.
0: Yep. Um, So we got to wrap this up, but I mean, what are you currently doing? What's the, what's the Eli Lee plan? I mean, as far as music or what's going on? I
1: have, I have, I have um, I actually have a song in a movie, a documentary coming out, I think on November 4th, November 17th. Um, It's called, the documentary is called Ghosts of the Republic or Republic. It's French. Um, I'll have more information on that when I have it. I've seen it. And I have the song at the very end of the movie. So that's good. And it's, a, I end like title, a as they say,
0: end title.
1: the, the end, end title. Um, and then, you know, I had, I probably have my favorite song I have ever written, ready to go. And I was, I have a quarantine music video I made. It has a bunch of like dancers in it. It's like, I just love it. And I love the song. And it's super LGBT themed. Um it's every once in a while I'll write a song and I'll be like, This is a good song and I know it. I am I know it. <laughs> and this is that song. I had a whole plan for it. I was gonna release it, but then all the stuff happened um with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, and I was like, I'm not releasing anything right now. Like I'm not I just feel like such can I say asshole? <laughs> I you, can I, say you know it. I can't promote I still am not at the point of wanting to promote anything for myself personally right now because I see that there are problems in the world that are so huge and I don't want to be any part of taking away that attention. Not that like it's my stuff is going to get that much attention to take away from it, but I don't want to be on social media promoting a song that I just made while people are like protesting for their lives, you know? So I have stuff that I'm going to put out. I just have to Get to the emotional place for myself and where the and the world has to get to a place where I feel comfortable
0: starting to like promote things again. That makes perfect sense. So all right, my friend, I look forward to hearing it when it's ready. And um thank you for making the time. I mean, it's a great discussion. I could ask a million more questions, but we have to go. So but thank you for making time. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks for having me on.
0: My pleasure. Pleasure. Love you, brother. You too. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned a little something. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. Um, theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t shirt or a hat. Also, I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts till next week